Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. If you did not get a listening guide, uh, please raise your hand and Alex will get you one from the back and that'll help you follow along with us in our time today. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is known for numerous achievements during his three terms as U.S. President, battling the Great Depression, instituting the New Deal, leading the United States through most of the Second World War. One of his singular and lasting moments came on January 6, 1941, in an address to Congress, in which Roosevelt outlined the fundamental rights that he believed all people everywhere in the world were entitled to enjoy. And these four freedoms, as they became known, were freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. While the first two freedoms are positive, the last two are negative, because Roosevelt understood that in order to pursue a meaningful and fulfilling life, both want and fear present overwhelming obstacles. And as such, it is a fundamental human right to avoid these things, to be free from these things. But even half a century and more after these words were spoken, we still spend most of our days trying to avoid want and fear. We get up in the morning and we immediately go about setting our, our wants and needs in order. We go to the bathroom and we deal with one kind of need. We go downstairs, turn on the coffee maker, pop in the Pop-Tarts or the Egos, and we get to work dealing with another kind of need. We make most of our major life decisions around these things. We try to make sure that our needs are met while avoiding our fears. And this, of course, carries over into our walk with God. We know that God first made the physical world. He made our physical bodies. He called them good, very good. And we know that need predates the fall because God placed our first parents in a garden full of trees so that they could meet the physical need of food. And even after the fall, as we live in a life full of wants and fears, we know that God assures us as a good father that he is able to meet those things. He is able to meet our needs and calm our greatest fears. And yet, because of our fixation on these things, we can imagine that God serves no greater role in our lives than to meet our physical needs and keep us from fear. And that if we pray hard enough and with sufficient orthodoxy, he will do these things. In our text this morning, Ruth chapter 2, verses 17 through 23, we meet again two widows, Ruth and Naomi, no strangers to want, no strangers to fear. But as we turn again this morning to see the subtle and yet profound ways that the Lord is providentially working in their story, and by extension in our story, we will see that God is not merely able to provide for all of our needs, but he is also able to include us in his glorious plan of salvation. Ruth chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. If you don't have your copy of God's word, it's going to be up on the screen for us. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her also, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, as we, yet again this morning, open up your word and ponder what it has to say, Lord, would you give us grace to see what are your good and precious promises? Would you give us grace by your spirit to believe them? And would you give us grace by your spirit, Lord, to have fresh desire for Christ as we unpack these things this morning? And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So we'll see from Ruth chapter 2, verses 17 through 23, two ways in which God provides for the needs of Ruth and Naomi. The first of these is the provision of food. We're picking up again the story of Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that Naomi had originally left her hometown in Bethlehem. She had gone to sojourn for a time in the foreign country of Moab. And while she was there with her husband and and two sons trying to escape famine, death followed after them. Her husband and sons died during this period in Moab, and Naomi is left in Moab alone except for one loyal daughter-in-law, the titular character of this book, Ruth. And Naomi has since returned from sojourning in Moab with Ruth, and these two destitute widows have arrived in Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. Ruth is evidently capable of doing physical work at this point, but having no other option, she goes out to glean in a field to literally pick up the leftovers left behind by harvesters working in this field. And we saw last week that she has met and been shown kindness by the field's owner, a man named Boaz. And we pick up this morning at the end of that first day of work, considering first Ruth's diligence. It is God who has provided for Ruth. It is God who has provided for Naomi. But as is frequently the case in the Bible, God has done so through ordinary means. So often in Scripture, we see the Lord doing this. He's guiding events, directing the course of his people's lives to the desired outcome. But the means he uses to do this are so often ordinary. In this passage, we don't have anything we would typically call miraculous. God does not audibly speak. The clouds do not part. Bread does not rain down on his people from heaven. And yet, we find that God has provided for the needs of Ruth and Naomi. He has done this, first of all, through the diligence of Ruth. Verse 17 notes that she worked in the field of Boaz till evening. And earlier in this chapter, in verse 7, we overhear one of the workers in the field telling Boaz that Ruth had come there early in the morning, that she had worked all throughout the day except for a short rest. The day is now over. Ruth is punching the clock. She has worked her nine to five and then some. She has so ordered her schedule, as day laborers did in those days, that she has worked 
as long as there was daylight, from sunrise to sunset. And by her commendable and yet nevertheless ordinary diligence, the Lord has provided for her needs and the needs of Naomi as well. One of my favorite examples of God working through ordinary means is the story of Joseph, which takes up the last 14 or so chapters in the book of Genesis. And Joseph, as you may know, was sold unjustly by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. But the Lord was with him in the place of slavery and gave him favor in the eyes of his master. And just as things were beginning to turn around, he is unjustly imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. But the Lord is with him there even in the prison and he gets Joseph out of that place and raises him up to be, in effect, the prime minister of Egypt. And not only that, but he is put in a position to save the brothers who sold him into slavery from a deadly famine. And he tells his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for me, you meant evil against me, but the Lord meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God, working subtly yet sovereignly through the twists and turns of Joseph's life, bring it to, brings it to exactly the point that he wanted exactly what he had desired. And he is doing that sort of thing in the life of Ruth and Naomi as well. I wonder what would happen if we had this view of God's work in our lives. The oft-reference apocryphal verse, God helps those who help themselves, is of course nowhere to be found in our Bibles. And yet... The testimony of Scripture is clear from start to finish that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth is just as able to bring about his perfect will through the faithfulness of his people as through a miracle. The God who did, in fact, rain down bread on his people in the desert, the God who would later cause the oil and the flour of the widow in Elisha's day to not run out, here provides Food through the ordinary faithfulness of a Moabite widow? What if we view the jobs that God placed us in, the children that he has given us to raise, the neighbors he has placed on either side of us as what they really are, avenues for God to work in us and through us his sovereign purposes in our lives and the lives of those around us? How different might we approach what others see as a dead-end job when we realize that God is at work there in ways we may never fully understand to accomplish things beyond our wildest dreams? How different might we approach our parenting when we realize that every word of patient instruction from the Lord that we give to our children has the potential to be used by God in ways that will echo for eternity? The only limit to what God can do through your ordinary faithfulness is God himself. In other words, there are no limits. For we will see that God has not only provided for the physical needs of Ruth and Naomi here, he has provided for so much more. And he has done so through Ruth's diligence, but also through Boaz's generosity, still there in verse 17. The verse goes on to say that at the end of the day, Ruth beat out what she had gleaned. That is, she shook out her long, loose garment that she used as a container for barley, and it measured to about an ephah. How much is that? I'm glad you asked. 
It's about five dry gallons of barley. It's about five full milk-sized jugs full of barley. It is a stack of bread, literally. It is food enough for her and Naomi for days. And keep in mind the desperate straits that these two women are in. They have just come from a long journey the day before. And there's no mention in the text that they were greeted or shown hospitality of any kind by friend or family. Ruth and Naomi may well have been on the brink of starvation at this point. I want you to imagine going to work in the morning with the intent that you will take your entire paycheck and go to the grocery store afterwards, spend all of it on food, and come home, and that is the only food that is in your house. When she left that morning, Ruth could have had no idea how much food she was going to glean, if any. No doubt her expectation was to be living hand-to-mouth for the foreseeable future as the day's fortunes dictated. Having food enough for several days is a literally life-changing turn of events for this young woman and her aged mother-in-law. God has done this through her, through her diligence, through her faithfulness, but also through the generosity of Boaz. Boaz, the owner of the field where Ruth has gleaned, has, of course, allowed her to glean among his workers in obedience with the Mosaic law, which commanded that landowners not go all the way to the edges of their field and not go over a second time to make sure that the poor, the widow, the sojourner had something to gather up behind them. And in a time of rampant godlessness and apostasy, Boaz's obedience to this law stands out as remarkable. But this chapter also tells us that Boaz went above and beyond the requirements of the law. He had told his workers in verses 15 and 16 not only to let Ruth glean around the edges, but also to let her come to the best part of the field and glean among the sheaves, get right up to where his workers have already gathered things together and take from that area. And and moreover than that, for them to to sprinkle some of what they had already gathered from the bales and, and leave that behind so that she had a lot to glean. We know from chapter one that the Lord has visited his people with food and Boaz is having a bumper crop. But his response to this generosity from the Lord is to pass on what he has been given to the lowest and the poorest and the most vulnerable. Boaz isn't using this windfall to buy back company stock or increase dividend payments. He's actually making his workers less efficient so that his business enterprise is more beneficial to the weakest and the lowest and the poorest in Israel, including this destitute widow sojourner. His instinct when he was shown generosity by the Lord was not to keep that, but to pass it on, to do what was best for those around him. And God used that spirit of generosity as well as his material resources to provide for Ruth and Naomi. Again, I wonder what God might do through Christians and professing Christians in this country if we had this kind of view of the resources that God has given us. We as a nation, by and large, are notorious for siding with the rich against the poor. We generally favor laws and policies that we hope will help us someday when we become rich, rather than those which would most benefit the vast numbers of lower class and working poor people. 
There was a poll taken in 2017 that said that self-identified Christians are about twice as likely as non-believers to blame a poor person's poverty for their lack of effort as opposed to adverse circumstances. And this in a country where the top 1% of the population holds 40% of the wealth, whereas the bottom 80%, as in you and me and everybody we have ever met, the bottom 80% holds about 7% of the wealth. You spread out resources like that, and people are going to be in need. Yes, sometimes through their own fault, their own lack of effort, their own laziness, but many times through no fault of their own. Now, economic disparity and injustice are complex issues without easy solutions. And the scriptures certainly don't advocate any one particular political or economic approach to dealing with these problems. But the scriptures do require us as the people of God to see ourselves, first of all, as those who are impoverished, as those who are beggars spiritually before God and who have been shown incredible, unmerited grace and mercy and favor by God in the gift of his son. The scriptures require of us to see everything that we earn and produce in this life as God's gracious provision in us and through us. They require us to dispel the satanic notion imported from the prosperity gospel that godliness will always equal wealth and that poverty is always the result of sin or laziness or a sense of entitlement. They require us to see those who are economically disadvantaged for whatever reason as our fellow image bearers. And to do what DJ talked about last week, to share not only our resources but also our lives with them. They command us not to self-righteously assume that every person we meet who is poor is the personification of the sluggard from the book of Proverbs. They require us to see that when God provides for our needs, he is also providing for the needs of those who are unable to provide for themselves. And whether that leads you to radical private giving or voting for measures to reduce wealth inequality and provide more robust welfare provisions for the poor, or some combination of both, the people of God who have been generously provided for should be providing generously for others. The God who, Luke tells us, came to proclaim good news to the poor expects his people to be doing the same. Boaz has done this. And we will see the incredible impact of his godly concern for the poor as we examine Naomi's response in verses 18 and 19. We see that Ruth brought back to her mother-in-law not only the tremendous amount of food that she herself had gleaned, but also the leftovers from the food that Boaz had provided for her at the midday meal. This speaks to both the care and concern that Ruth had for Naomi, that that Ruth will not overlook the smallest amount of food that she might pass on to her, to her mother-in-law, but it also speaks to the desperate state of these two women. Imagine being in a place where you're so uncertain about where your next meal is going to come from that you pack up leftovers from the catered company lunch to take them home to your family so they can have a bite to eat. Actually, I've done this once or twice. Uh, I believe that you can't pass up free food. Uh, one day, I actually came home with a whole Papa John's pizza. Duttweilers ate like kings that night. The text says that 
Naomi saw what Ruth brought home and begins to ask where she gleaned, where did she work, and to pronounce a blessing on the as-of-yet-unnamed benefactor who took notice of her. Implication, this is a haul of food. Ruth has come home with pockets bulging. And Naomi rightly interprets this as a sign that somebody has shown her favor. DJ pointed out last week what a precarious position this was to glean in somebody's field. The only hope that a a gleaner would have that they could find somebody, somebody who was actually keeping the law of Moses, who was actually leaving something behind for someone to pick up after them. And given that this is taking place in the judges' period, a period of rampant apostasy, finding someone who's actually leaving margin for the poor cannot be assumed. And then that Ruth would come home, not just with something, but with enough for the two of them for days tells Naomi that they have not had an ordinary experience in the field today. This is further confirmed in Ruth's answer to Naomi's question. The man with whom I work today is Boaz. Ruth has no idea at this point the significance of this name. At this point, all she knows is that she has been shown unmerited kindness and favor by this man. And that Through the generosity of Boaz, her and Naomi's needs for days have been met and more than met by the God of Boaz. We'll see momentarily, however, that this name is pregnant with meaning. But before we get there, we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we believe that God will provide for our needs the way he has provided for Ruth and Naomi? And are we believing it to the point that we can be radically generous the way that Boaz was? Because we can't do the latter absent from the former. But we can and will do the reckless, the radical, the unthinkable when we are sure that we are backed by the power and provision of Almighty God who meets all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to out myself as a nerd if I have not already done so, but there is a scene in the extended version of The Return of the King, not just The Return of the King, but the extended version of The Return of the King, uh, where the great warrior king Aragorn is standing on the banks of a river with his two companions on either side of him, and he is confronting this massive fleet of mercenary sailors that that are coming down the river, and he tells them, dead serious, stop, go back. It's absurd, It's insane. It's audacious. He's outnumbered at least 300 to 1. And, of course, the soldiers begin to mock him and jeer at him. And inevitably comes the line, who's going to stop us? You and and whose army? And then he looks at them all serious. I I actually hate this line, but he says, this army. And then this, this ghostly horde charges at them. It's this ghost army that he can control for some reason. It's kind of a long story. Go see the movie. But, but the point is, He knew in that moment, it's not just me here. I have behind me an unstoppable, all-powerful force that can cash the check I'm about to write. And that let him do something that was so audacious that it would otherwise be insane. When we are convinced that at our back is the powerful, providential power of God, who not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but always looks at us favorably in his son, Christ Jesus. 
We will undertake naturally radical acts of generosity that would otherwise be insane, but are actually the most sensible thing we could possibly do. Because the God who owns everything entrusts us with material wealth so that by the wise and generous use of that wealth, we can show ourselves worthy of true riches that last forever. Are you convinced this morning that God is able to provide for you the way he provided for Ruth and Naomi? I'm going to tread carefully here. You notice what I am not asking? I am not asking if you have faith enough to speak to your circumstances and claim financial victory in Jesus over your problems so that you can achieve a breakthrough and have your miracle happen today. You notice all the you's in that sentence? No, I am asking if you trust your heavenly Father to always give you what he knows to be good in his time and in his way. I'm not asking you to trust in God's stuff, but to trust in God's heart and will, that he is our good and gracious heavenly Father who knows what we need before we ask him. And that means he will provide what he decides is right in our circumstances. And his provision in your life might not look like his provision in somebody else's life. He might financially bless somebody else so that when you are in need, they have the means to meet your need. He may even, in his sovereign goodwill, allow you to die in poverty in a third world country, having given your last dollar to someone to buy their meal, trusting with your dying breath, that God is good for you and that you will receive reward from him that will last forever and that will more than repay you for everything that you gave away in this life. Do you trust God this way this morning? And if so, or if like most of us, you were on a journey of trusting him this way, is that trusting translating into giving? I'm going to echo DJ's word from last week that I am not trying to guilt you all into giving to this church. You are doing that. You are doing that so abundantly that DJ and Dave and I are having to scheme up ways to spend all of the money that you are giving to advance the mission of the church in Crestwood. It is a great problem to have. But like DJ, I share a pastor's concern for your heart. Because a heart full of trust in the Lord to provide is going to translate into acts of generosity. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 32, 31 rather, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm less worried about you giving money to this church so that we can, we can keep on the mission than where your heart is. Ask yourself this week, if my heart were to be judged only by my spending habits, what would that say about me? Am I showing trust in the Lord as my provider with my giving? Or am I putting my trust in wealth that I know will not last? And let me ask you the same question about your use of time. We often forget that time is more precious than money. 
They print more money every single day, but none of us can add a single second to our lives. Does your use of time reflect your trust in the Lord who provides? Do you trust the Lord enough to not work late so that you have time to spend with your kids talking about the things of the Lord? Do you trust the Lord with your time enough to spend time talking to a coworker who is asking spiritual questions? Do you trust the Lord long enough to linger in conversation with an unbeliever, trusting that he will give you time to get your homework or your sermon prep done to his standard, if not to your own? If we are convinced that God can and will provide for us the way he provided for Ruth and Naomi, it will lead us to undertake radical acts of generosity, just as it led Boaz. But the Lord is going to provide much, much, much more to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. God, through Boaz, will not only make provision of food, but also provision of redemption. As we consider Naomi's response to the name Boaz, we need to cast our minds back a few weeks to earlier in her story. We need to go back and find Naomi heartbroken in the fields of Moab over the deaths of her husband and sons. To find her sinking into bitterness against the Lord who she perceived has gone out against her. We need to journey back with her to her hometown of Bethlehem where she is greeted by family and neighbors who can't even recognize her for the weight of sorrow and grief that has leaked into her face. And where she asked to no longer be called Naomi, which means pleasant, but Mara, which means bitterness, because of the bitterness with which the Lord has dealt with her. And, and we need to go back even to that morning on that same day when Ruth asks her for permission to go and glean in the field and perhaps with optimism, but perhaps with resignation and hopelessness, Naomi says, go, do it. We have no other options at this point. With these things in mind, we can see the remarkable nature of Naomi's response to the name of Boaz, for she is suddenly able to see anew the kindness of the Lord. In verse 20, this woman whose life has been dominated by loss and sorrow and hopelessness and bitterness against the Lord, suddenly erupts in a benediction that reflects a new dawning of hope and promise in her life. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. With the mention of this name, with the connection made that this is not just a wealthy benefactor, but this is someone who can change their whole course of their life, Naomi's entire outlook changes. She builds upon her earlier blessing of Ruth's benefactor, but what changes most, what is most striking is her new perspective on the actions of God. Just a chapter ago, she referred to the Lord as the one who had dealt very bitterly with her. But now in renewed hope, she declares that the kindness of the Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead. The little drops of light that have been falling throughout the narrative have suddenly pooled into a sunbeam of hope in her heart. She sees in an instant what has been true this entire story, and that is that God has never left her nor forsaken her. 
And we'll look at, in just a moment, how, how big a deal this is. But there is a truth here that we need to ruminate on this morning. We may pass through times where we, we feel so sure that God has abandoned us. But if you were in Christ this morning, God's kindness has not abandoned you. You may not understand how that can be the case. You may have reasons stored up in your heart and mind why that can certainly not be the case. You might have lashed out at the Lord this month, this week, even this morning, demanding that he show himself, demanding to know why he seems so absent when you need him so much. But let me say to you again, the kindness of God has not forsaken you. This is the unbroken and unbreakable testimony of God's word from start to finish that the kindness of God does not abandon his chosen people. When Adam and Eve found themselves naked and ashamed, the taste of the fruit that plunged them and the entire human race into sin still fresh in their mouths, God's kindness did not forsake them. When Joseph, who we've already mentioned this morning, found himself first in slavery and then in prison for a crime he did not commit, left to languish for years with no hope of delivery, God's kindness did not forsake him. When David found himself on the run from Saul, even after having been anointed king, after having fought for the people of God in single combat against Goliath, God's kindness did not forsake him. And when Israel as a people found themselves in exile in Babylon, having turned from the Lord time after time between the death of Joshua and the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple at the hands of invading armies, and have found themselves not only exiled, but on the brink of genocide at the hands of a man named Haman, God's kindness did not forsake them. Even in your darkest moments, when you are as sure as you can be that God is nowhere to be found, when you watch your child persist in unrepentant sin or endure medical treatment for a life-threatening illness, when you get the phone call you've been dreading from your doctor about your tests, when you're told by your boss that you're being downsized, even in these moments where the absence of God is almost palpable, God's kindness has not forsaken you. That is because if you are in Christ this morning, then Christ has tasted forsakenness for you. On the cross, abandoned by his disciples, mocked by passers-by, left to die in perhaps the most humiliating and excruciating way ever devised by men, Jesus became a curse for you and me. Experiencing in his suffering the full fury of the wrath of God, the absence of God's presence of blessing and giving voice to the horror of that experience. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he was able to pray in the end. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Because in the end, God did not ultimately forsake Jesus, but he received his spirit and raised him up on the third day. And because of the cross, brothers and sisters, God will never leave you nor forsake you. God has not left, nor has he forsaken Naomi. Nor has he forsaken Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. 
The Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken Naomi, the living, has also not forsaken the dead. For Boaz is a divinely appointed channel through which the Lord can not only transform Naomi and Ruth's lives, but he can change the legacy of Naomi's family. And it is in that power that we find the hope of Naomi in verse 20. You see, as Naomi explains, Boaz is not just any wealthy benefactor of exceptional character. He is a close relative of theirs. He is one of their redeemers. Now, to properly understand the significance of this term, we need to go back in our Bibles to the foundation of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and in particular to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, says the Lord. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold." You see, the people of God were not just living in any random swath of geography. It was the promised land. It was the land that God had promised Abraham and his descendants centuries before. And when the Lord had led his people out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them this land as a stewardship with certain restrictions and regulations. And one being that if an Israelite family should find themselves financially insolvent, and be forced to sell their, their portion of the land, then whoever bought that portion had to be ready to sell it back to a family member, a redeemer. That way, the land would stay in the family and not be lost. And since the land itself was a trust from God, it became part of their identity, their, their family image, such that to lose one's share in the land was akin to losing one's self. The implication with all this is that Naomi, upon returning to Bethlehem, is going to be forced by her circumstances to sell the land that belonged to her family. She has already lost her husband, already lost her sons. Losing the land and this portion of her family identity is just one more sting of bitterness that she has felt in these, the last years of her life. And her only hope is that a close relative, a next of kin, a redeemer might be found to perform the duties specified in Leviticus 23 and buy back the land that might otherwise be lost. But there is more. For not only is Naomi financially impoverished, she is childless in a time where nothing mattered more to a woman than being able to give a son to her husband and carry on the family name. This is why in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, the barren Rachel commands to her husband, give me children or I shall die. That is the kind of significance that they attach to childbirth in this time. Naomi faces not only the loss of her family plot of land, but also the knowledge that with her sons having died without children, the name of her family is about to be extinguished. Yet here too, God's law made provision for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. 
If brothers dwell together, and if one of them dies and has no sons, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel." God makes a twofold provision for his people in this law. The first is that of care and protection for widows. We've seen time and again over the past few chapters how precarious was the position of a widow in this time. And so by commanding the brother-in-law of the widow to take her as his wife in a period without social security, without welfare programs, it shows God's heart for women in general and for widows in particular, the great value that they have in his eyes. So this law ensured that this widow would be provided for and protected following the death of her husband. But it also ensured that the name of the deceased would not be lost in Israel, would not be blotted out in Israel. This is exactly what Naomi is facing. Elimelech has died. Melon and Kilian have died without sons. And when she is gone, the names of her family are going to be blotted out in Israel as though they had never lived. But with the mention of the name of Ruth, the mention of this name, Boaz, suddenly a ray of hope shines onto Naomi. The land need not be lost. Her family name need not be blotted out. Boaz is not just any wealthy benefactor. He is a redeemer. He is in position to buy back the land of Naomi, that it not leave her family. He is in a position as well to perform the duty of a brother to her sons, to take the widow Ruth as his wife and provide her with a son to perpetuate the name of the dead in Israel. It is no wonder that she responds to his name like this. Her eyes are suddenly open to the reality that God in his kindness has not forsaken her and has not forsaken the dead And she sees suddenly a way that her family can be provided for and preserved in Israel, that Ruth can be settled and protected. Ruth, in contrast, appears to be unaware of the significance of this remark. Possibly she didn't know the the role of a kinsman redeemer. Or perhaps she is simply more concerned with the immediate concerns of providing for their day-to-day needs. For she quickly turns this conversation from the the future redeeming role of Boaz to the ongoing provision of Boaz. She remarks that Boaz has not only provided her with the day's gleanings, but has promised ongoing provision and protection for her in his fields until the end of the harvest. Now, it's hard for me, reading this narrative, not to see this as anticlimactic. Boaz has come onto the scene, and now with the pronouncement of Ruth, we know what his role is going to be. We know that God is able to provide, through this righteous and godly man, redemption and the the, the preservation of the family line. I am ready for him to burst in, buy back the land, marry Ruth right now this very night. That's what I want to have happen in the story. But but instead, the focus of the story remains very much on the day-to-day the here and now. Ruth is no doubt relieved at this promise of provision and protection from the Lord through Boaz, but her concern is still very much on getting through the next day, the next week, the next month, through the end of the harvest. 
And we're given no comment here on her outlook or her words, but I, I wonder if there's a truth here for us as well. That we can get so wrapped up in our day-to-day needs and concerns and cares that we risk missing out on what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And that unless we are constantly immersing ourselves in the Word of God and communing with Him in prayer and sharing our lives with the people of God and laboring with them to reach the lost around us, that we are going to be unable to see in our lives God's extraordinary purposes and what He is doing. And at least at this point in the story, Ruth appears to be missing out on what is going on. Naomi, however, oh, Naomi has a glimpse of where this story is headed. Even as this chapter ends on a note of unresolved tension for Ruth and Naomi, you notice that that while Ruth has said that she was to keep close to Boaz's young men while the harvest is concluding, Naomi says that she should stay with Boaz's young women. And we find Ruth in verse 23 doing exactly that. It's a subtle thing in the text, but it is significant giving the arc of the narrative. For Naomi is playing the long game now. You, you, you can almost see the wheels turning in her minds. She has a plan for Ruth and for Boaz. And she's not about to let some random young man in the field get in the way of that. She is picked up on the purposes of God, bringing her and and Ruth back to the fields just as the barley harvest was happening. And and Ruth just kind of randomly, by chance, stumbling onto the field of this particular man who is not only godly and righteous and wealthy, but also a close kinsman, a redeemer. Naomi has, has figured out what's going on here. And in the meantime... As the section closes, it's on a note of unresolved tension for the two of them. It's good that Ruth has a place to glean in Boaz's field. It's good that she's going to be provided for, that she's going to be protected, that that Boaz has that concern for her, which could not be assumed in his day nor in ours. But the situation is an explicitly temporary one. She continues to live with her mother-in-law, but it's through the the barley harvest and then through the wheat harvest and those things are going to eventually come to an end and the text leaves us wondering, what's going to happen? Ruth has got employment, but it's as a seasonal worker. What happens when the season is over? With any good story, we need to let the cliffhanger hang out there and you're going to have to come back next week and find out how it's going to be resolved. But as we close our time together this morning, let's pause and consider God's provision of redemption in the life of Ruth and Naomi and his provision of redemption in our lives as well. For as DJ pointed out last week, Boaz is a redeemer from Bethlehem, but he is not the redeemer from Bethlehem. And as precarious as was the position of these two widows, Ruth and Naomi... And as deep as their physical needs were, they have a greater need, and it is one that you and I have in common with them. They did not merely need the land brought back from potential forfeiture. Their very souls had been sold, like ours, into slavery to Satan and to sin and to death. 
And while a wealthy and righteous benefactor like Boaz could put up the necessary means to provide financial and social and economic redemption, only the Lord could accomplish the spiritual redemption that Ruth and Naomi and you and I so desperately need. But there is good news. Because the kindness of the Lord that had not forsaken Ruth and Naomi has not forsaken you and me. We have a Redeemer. Our Redeemer is the Lord, as he so describes himself throughout Scripture. He is the one who promised to redeem his people from slavery. Exodus 6.6, God says, Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord who will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. David, in 2 Samuel 4.9, calls the Lord the one who had redeemed his life out of every adversity. And when God's people had sinned against him and gone into exile in Babylon, the Lord showed kindness and mercy to them, let them go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. And this prompted Nehemiah to say in Nehemiah 1.10 that God is the one who had redeemed his people by great power and by a strong hand. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, as the messianic age was dawning, as God was preparing to send his son to take on flesh and to take on the sin and shame of the human race, the priest Zechariah proclaimed that God was finally visiting and redeeming his people. Ruth and Naomi needed a redeemer. They needed the financial and social redemption that Boaz would soon provide, but more than that, they needed the true Redeemer who was still to come, the one who would buy them back, the one who would repay the debt for their sins that they never could, who would absorb the wrath of God for their sins and credit them with perfect righteousness and holiness so that rather than living as outcasts, they would be brought into the perfect eternal family of God. And though God would use a man in their story, the redemption that these two women need is so much more profound than any man could give them. And that is the redemption that you and I need as well. Let me ask you this morning, have you been redeemed by God through Jesus Christ? Has God brought you to the point where you recognize that sin has placed you in debt to a degree that you could never, ever hope to repay, that your very life could not repay your debt to God? And that God, instead of declaring your life forfeit, instead of blotting your name out as you deserve, has sent his only begotten son to lay down his perfect, spotless, sinless life to buy you back? And that God would not have you left without legacy or a name or family in this world, but invites you to join his perfect, eternal family, the church? Has God brought you to that point? And if not, let today be the day that you turn your back on your efforts to redeem yourself, your efforts to repay God, your efforts to save yourself. Repent, believe in the life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of Jesus. Believe in the one true redeemer of all that is lost. And if God has brought you to this point, if he has redeemed you from your debt of sin owed against God by the cost of a son's life, let me ask you, how are you treating those who have a debt against you? 
Jesus in Matthew 18 was asked by Peter, it's always Peter that starts the trouble. He asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Thinking he's being generous, he asks Jesus, should I forgive my brother seven times? The, the number symbolizing completeness and divine wholeness. And Jesus famously answers him, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So exponentially more than you think, Peter. And he tells them this parable to illustrate in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, pocket change. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly disturbed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The point of this parable, not at all being that we earn forgiveness from God by forgiving others, but rather that we show that we grasp the magnitude of the forgiveness that we have received when we forgive others, when they repent of the comparatively minuscule offenses they commit against us. Is this your attitude when others sin against you and repent? Are you quick to remember that you yourself have been redeemed from a massive, unrepayable debt against God, the ultimate creditor? Are you quick to forgive those who repent, thereby redeeming the debt they owe against you by their offense and their hurt? Or do you find yourself holding on in bitterness to the debt that others have incurred against you? When you see the offending party long after they have tried to make amends, do you find yourself rehearsing old hurts again and again in your minds? If that is your attitude, it suggests that you have lost sight of the ugliness of your sin, the ugliness of your debt, and the costliness of your forgiveness. I urge you, spend some time meditating on those things this week. Consider the fact that even one bitter thought, even one lustful look, even one outburst of anger against your children, your spouse, against another driver on the road, 
Just one of those things was enough to send Christ to the cross. That was the only thing that could redeem that sin, that infinitely heinous act against an infinitely holy God. Consider that you have committed many such sins. And consider that had God's grace not intervened, you were never going to repay that debt. You were only going to dig yourself a deeper grave day by day. It is from that, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed you by spilling his innocent blood. Think of the most unjust death of the most innocent or blameless man, a a Jim Elliot, a Martin Luther King Jr. Consider that their innocence was nothing when compared with the shining, unadulterated holiness of Jesus and that no matter how unjust and ugly those deaths were, There has never been and could never be a more unjust, undeserved death than the death of the Lord Jesus. His death was the cost of our redemption. And he paid it gladly out of love for us. Ponder these truths today, this week. Call them afresh to your mind the next time you are tempted to hold on in bitterness to the debt incurred by another against you. And let the forgiveness that you extend in that moment be reflective of the greatness of the redemption that God has worked in your life in Jesus Christ. As people who have been redeemed from a great debt, may we be the swiftest and most willing to forgive the debts that others have against us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have borne in forbearance unimaginable debt against you by this human race. And you, in unfathomable love, have sent your one and only Son, the only one who could ever pay the cost to redeem us, the only one who could ever buy us back from our slavery to Satan and sin and death, the only one who could pay the debt we incurred against you, Father. And you have done that gladly because you love us. You have done that freely, Lord, before we ever lifted a finger to turn to you, before we ever could. God, may we grasp the magnitude of our forgiveness. May we be swift to forgive others when they sin against us. And may we be swift, Lord, to tell those who have never heard about the forgiveness that can be found in Christ. May we be, we be swift to invest our time as those who have been repaid, those who have been redeemed from a great debt. And we ask these things in your Son's matchless, perfect, and holy name. Amen.